great. Fantastic lady. Yeah, that's fantastic. Too. Her telling us that is relatively new. It's, it's so uh, people can't be recorded on accident, I guess. Yeah, with like the pandemic and all, <clears throat> people like, I guess, started to use Zoom more and more and more and more. And then they figured out like, hey, we should probably let people know that we're recording them. Yeah, it's all in, you know, it's on a database somewhere. I didn't. So I had um, my buddy gave me a bunch of uh, Google Home speakers for uh, Christmas a couple of years ago. And I like just found them again and I plugged them in and I'm just watching TV. It's in my bathroom so I can like listen to music while I'm in the shower. And I was watching TV last night. And then all of a sudden I just hear that's an interesting question. Would you like more on that? Tell me another <laughs> one. And I was like, what, dude? It was very, very creepy because, uh, yeah, it was just very, very creepy. <laughs> we have an Alexa, <clears throat> like the Amazon version. And so anytime, actually, see, she heard me because I just said her name. There's one sitting right over here. But uh, anytime like a TV commercial comes on for them, it's like, hey, Alexa. And then our shit pops off. It's crazy. Well, and didn't didn't uh, employees just come out and straight up say that they listen and they've heard stuff and like they have the capability? I'm sure. I mean, it yeah. wouldn't surprise me because I guess the I guess the moral question now is, do you pull that as evidence if there's like a murder in a house? and there's an Alexa in the house, do you pull that as evidence? Is that morally right? Hmm, I that's fucking a good question. Say, I say absolutely not. Yeah. Because I'm a big... The, the, my whole thing with people getting super excited about cancel culture or... any number of mob justice stuff it's like you don't under and they like people wanting new laws and it's like people don't understand that like it's all good until it turns on you and at (laughs) some point it can and then you will wish to god that and, and it's like and everyone's like the classic argument of like well i'm not doing anything wrong so i don't have to worry about it but what if they say you are, you know what I mean? Like, what if it, it's the whole um, V for Vendetta, the whole big brother, 1984 thing. It's like once they, if there is one arbiter of like, what is right, wrong and legally prosecutable, prosecutable. (laughs) Yeah. um, That's, that's, that's fucked, dude. I don't like that. I don't think we should like that. I was listening to uh, Hamilton Morris. Do you know who that is? I don't think so. He did the show uh, Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia. He's a chemist, but he's like, that show is awesome. It's just all about drugs and like really obscure drugs. And I'm like, drugs are still my hobby, like reading, (laughs) researching. It's just super fascinating to me. But his, his argument against, um, making like jumping to making things illegal is such a bad idea because it's it's we don't realize how like we're figuring it out with weed like once something (laughs) is illegal it is so hard to take a law back 
And so his argument is like, you know, there's tons, the opioid epidemic right now, like everyone's like, yeah, we just need like new laws, make this shit illegal. And it's like, pump your brakes. Like (laughs) you got to be really careful about just banning things outright because that's what happened with psychedelics in the seventies because the government was afraid of the counterculture and now and that so like there was a ton of um psychedelic research into psychiatric medicine which i totally believe that's probably going to be the next generation of depression and uh post-traumatic stress medicines are going to come from hallucinogens but it just literally overnight stopped all of it because it's like nope this is just bad and only now are they finally getting back into like psilocybin research and mdma and all that stuff that's crazy yeah my um with the drug stuff too it's so interesting like what you're able to get for like research purposes and stuff my buddy um like his job he works in a lab where they do all sorts of testing and stuff on drugs and like medical research and that kind of stuff and he said he could literally like be like hey i need a pound of crystal meth a pound of heroin Uh, and like get anything that he wants whenever on his desk but the one thing that he can't get is marijuana he'd be like i want a pound of weed and they'd be like no no marijuana anything else fair game won't let them get weed to research it it's dude it makes me and so you you so all right i always do this so this is josh patterson from uh rethinking faith formerly theology, theology doesn't, doesn't suck. suck yeah uh rebranded for the kids yep. it's it's <laughs> no longer the negative connotation um <laughs> yeah i was legitimately told by a former pastor that i used to work for um that he was disgusted by my podcast name because theology doesn't suck is a sexual innuendo and that it was perverted and so I was like, all right, <laughs> that's your reason for not liking it, <laughs> not liking it. All right. I remember getting rep that just triggered a, a elementary school memory of I said someone sucked and someone, some adult was like, that means like you want them to perform oral sex. And I was like, no, it doesn't, <laughs> like, no, it doesn't dude. Like now it does. I didn't I didn't think that until you just said that. But thanks. Yeah, um, they do it. Yeah. So you, you started the podcast though. You're like, is drinking cool? And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that is my biggest, um, my biggest argument of why it's so ridiculous that any chemicals are illegal is that the most harmful chemical that humans do, which this is a, this is one of the, the, uh, myths that I like to dispel. Well, I always Mm -hmm. ask people like, what do you think is the most harmful drug? crack heroin and i'm like nope it's alcohol that's going to be the only drug that can cause cancer to i mean i guess you could say it's dangerous in this way it's the only drug that can cause cancer in every part of the body that it touches like esophageal stomach rec, uh, renal rectal renal um <laughs> your butt but it's yeah <laughs> butt stuff <laughs> but it is the one that america was like yeah this one's cool this is cool. We're just going to do this. And they have done such a fantastic job. I mean, there's an, like my parents generation is so convinced. I mean, they're getting, I think they're getting, uh, now that they're getting old and a lot of them are trying, uh, medical marijuana, they're changing their tune, but not my parents, but in general, 
they were so convinced that like LSD and marijuana were straight the devil's work and like not to be trusted. And it's like, but alcohol is fine. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's, 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 the, it's the greatest con ever pulled. And it's like, it's not to say that these, these, people always surprised that like me who works as a substance abuse counselor thinks like I'm fully on board with decriminalization of, of all drugs, because I think it's ludicrous that we, a police consciousness, I think that's a personal choice. Uh, and B it's like, okay, if you're going to do that, then, then alcohol has got to go too. And like the whole thing is like, we don't, we haven't banned drugs. We have just put them in the hands of pharmaceutical. You can still get prescription methamphetamine as desoxin. You can still, or, you know, America's favorite drug amphetamines. Uh, you can still get opiates. You can still, you know, it's just this ridiculous fucking game that everyone plays and nobody realizes it, it really just started uh, to police hippies and then, mexicans and then black people i mean <laughs> yeah. literally that's why yeah, for sure yeah that was uh you know marijuana was originally like to prosecute hispanics and it's like it's just mm -hmm. just this crazy shit i was watching an awesome so i interviewed you should watch this too this will be my uh my documentary pick of the week uh blitzed the drugs in nazi germany so i had the author of that book on guy named Norm uh, Norman Moeller Mueller, um, and it's not. I guess it's based on his book mostly, but it's just all about how. So it's kind of like really forgotten, but Hitler was able to. So Berlin pre World War II became this, like you can think of it like a, a whole country of new Orleans. Like they were extremely okay. hedonistic. You could get heroin, um, the, um, freely you could get amphetamines freely drinking sex. It was this, this huge sexually liberated and drug fueled society. And so naturally kind of like America with alcohol, there started this wave of like purity culture. And so Hitler, was able to champion the whole idea of clean living. Like uh, he had this idea of the perfect naked uh, body, like through exercise, clean living, like you should look perfect with without any adornment, right? And so he really was able to be like, see, I'm this teetotaler, you know, Berlin is leading into all this debaucherous stuff. We need to rise above that. And so they really started the idea of the war on drugs that was a nazi idea where there were and they used it to it's the same way they used it to say you know that's for gypsies jews criminals these drug users we need to be against them and so that was the first idea but all the while hitler was getting these injections that you know he was high as fuck most of the time um and then they started using pervitine, which was famous. That was methamphetamine. And they figured out um, that that's how that was the secret to their the Blitzkrieg and the tanks being able to go um, long periods of time without stopping was literally because they were taking methamphetamine. There was so they they 
this will be my last thing on it, but you should watch it. But they were the military was really invested in creating a a uh, wonder drug, like the perfect performance enhancing drug that they could give their soldiers. Right, so they had these uh, uh, new mini submarines that were essentially like torpedoes with one pilot, and their idea was they were gonna shoot these mini subs uh into like uh great britain and just sneak in and it was going to be like a four-day journey so they tested what was called compound d9 d dash uh or d4 d dash 1v and it was a common it sounded fucking rad it was a combination of oxycodone cocaine and methamphetamine right and so they gave it to these 17 year old submarine pilots and sent them on their way and every single one of them had psychotic breakdowns hallucinated and died like none of them made it it was a colossal failure um but they were still like chasing after this idea of the perfect performance enhancing drug but then berlin got bombed and all of the drug factories like Merck not how uh, might be miss miss saying that but all the drug factories got blown up which cut off the supply of pervitine which really helped start the death nail in the soldiers and there's like uh letters written from the soldiers that are like dear mom the war is going great can you please send me some more pervitine tablets like all these soldiers are like yeah can i get my drugs please they actually had little chocolates that had methamphetamine in them and they called um panzer chocolate like tank chocolate is what they called them crazy 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 shit and it's like nobody like history has kind of glossed over like how pivotal drugs like they in world war ii that's when they invented methadone also because the heroin supply became demonized like that's bad so you had all these heroin addicts that needed um well no it was like the supply got cut off but they still needed something so they created this synthetic opioid that like we still use today crazy it is crazy yeah (laughs) what was that called blitzed blitzed yeah go check it out yeah it's just like an hour it's an easy watch and it's just so freaking interesting dude it's so interesting yeah, it sounds interesting. Yeah, it's really crazy. And I always talk about alcohol, man. I'm a bad example because I have a beer in front of me right now, and I actually no, I work in I work in the beer industry. So yeah, like, I'm contributing to the demise of America. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Like uh, I think it's also uh, like I would hate to see our country without it. Like I'm definitely mm-hmm. not. I'm definitely quite the opposite. Like I am not anti um drugs drinking whatever um you know for me and i think it's 10 percent now uh something like that 11 percent who have like the actual disease of addiction you just can't you know right you just, right. you just you can't do it safely yeah um and you know i think and who's to say like if you know i guess the places like portland uh are going to be the experiment where they've they've decriminalized 
uh, possession of personal amounts of all drugs. So we'll see how that goes. Um, hmm. I think it'll go well because that's really you can. The whole problem with fentanyl that we're having now is like like I remember um, like, have you watched any of those, uh, the crime of the century? There was one on Netflix, the documentaries about the opioid epidemic. I have not. No. So it actually started in Louisiana with this, uh, pharmacist who kind of became a whistleblower for, so in like the er the late nineties, early two thousands, um, Oxycontin, I'm sure you remember that name. Yeah. That yeah, was like sure. a huge thing. And the pharmaceutical companies kind of um, mistaking or maliciously were like, Oh, it's not a, this is this new formula. That's like non, like less addictive. And they knew it was, <laughs> yeah, they knew it was bullshit and they created yeah. this whole wave. And so they cracked down on it because of this pharmacist, the unintended consequences of that was a massive resurgence of heroin because it's like, you still have all these people that you have like awakened this addiction and then mm -hmm. you take away the supply. It's a classic case of banning something just does not work. You're just gonna yep. usually go to more dangerous routes. And so heroin became huge. And anytime there's money to be made, they're gonna find a cheaper way to do it. So they start shipping in cheap fentanyl from China, cutting it and bam, we have like the most lethal epidemic in history. Yep. Which my conspiracy hat comes on <laughs> when there it's like <laughs> China and Russia and other countries have long figured out that you cannot really take on America directly with a military assault, but you can absolutely destroy them from within. And I don't think it's coincidence that all this fentanyl from China is all of a sudden flooding the country like i just i do not think that that is an accident sure you yeah know? no i feel you man i feel you i i mean i'm not educated enough in the subject to have a i know that i didn't even mean to drop but i think though something that's interesting in this i guess is another controversial topic but what that reminded me of as you were speaking with the just not banning things outright uh, and this is taking a total turn, so forgive me. But the first thing that came to mind for me was abortion. Because it was like, it's the same thing. As soon as you start taking away safe uh, ways or not providing contraception or anything like that, the abortion rate actually skyrockets and more people die because now it's like super sketchy, very unsafe, like people in their basements, like all the stereotypes are true. And then like, yeah. it's way, way worse. And so that's interesting. I haven't thought about how that, same you know thinking maps onto the the whole drug no, idea. yeah that's interesting. yeah yeah, it's yeah. Like very it, similar it, it is and you could probably lay that framework on anything like just sure. banning things sounds great in theory but you are not like we change is not from legislation and laws it it starts with personal accountability so you you're taking away people's autonomy and assuming that it's just gonna stop and it's just like one of those <laughs> you know what i'm saying it's just it's yeah. it's really dumb abortion is a a tricky one for me because i am once again all for personal choice what i don't like 
about the conversation is the voices that kind of scream that it's no big deal. Sure. That it's just like, oh, it's just like taking out the trash. It's like literally, (laughs) you know, I mean, really, that's kind of and it's like, I'm not going to go that far to be like, it's just this flippant issue. Um, And I I think that's where laws and regulate it. it, That's a that's a such a tricky one. And it's I understand why. It, that's probably like the single most important issue that helped Trump get elected. Just any Republican get erected. Oh, elected, sure. That's their. That, well, I'm sure they get erected over it too, but that's their. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the shiny red button. That's what I like to call it. If abortion, if, if the Republican party, uh, damn it, I'm, now I'm getting political, but if the Republican party actually did all the stuff that it said it was going to do in regards to abortion, they wouldn't have a platform to run on anymore because of all their majority voters, white evangelicals. That's why they vote for Republicans because they're pro-life. But I think for me, it's just such a, like you're saying, it's such a difficult and nuanced conversation because I would like to say that I'm pro-life in the sense of like, in general, all life, like totally life. I'm, I'm not like abortions are great. Everybody should do it. But then at the same time, it's like, I don't, think it should be illegal but i also don't understand like there's no it's not black or white this or that like i don't know it's way more nuanced and it gets really messy really fast yeah totally i gotta let my ferrets out yeah hell yeah (laughs) whenever i start recording they start gnawing at the cage um so (laughs) so, yeah we'll 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 pivot off of that because that is a road led with landmines So this is what this I was thinking of what to talk about. And I I wanted to just I had so I went to church Sunday and I guess it was uh, the he gave the thumbs up (laughs) church. Good, good, good. Um, It was the first time I'd gone. So I started uh, playing a rec volleyball league. So normally um, our worship team rehearsals is Wednesday nights and that's when my volleyball is. So I told him I need to um, take a break because I won't be able to practice. And unfortunately, whenever I take a break from playing, I notice I just don't go because then I have uh, Sundays to sleep in. But so I finally went. It had been maybe like four or five weeks and it was just like, you know, I'm critiquing in my head. I'm like critiquing the worship music because it's like, I know all the like ins and outs of like the worship music industry, or maybe I've, I've just listened to too much of people gripe about it. Then the sermon is just about, Oh, it's a a message series on run your race. And it's like, (laughs) so they'll, they'll, they'll preach on three verses like three uh like one chapter verses one through four right that's Mm. that's the only scripture in the sermon cherry picked to fit this narrative and and i swear i think these like message series are every church uses the same ones and it was just very (laughs) stereotypical like run your race and 
um, God has sacrificed this stuff for you so that you can, you know, do better and do, you know, and it's basically a motivational speech with like a hint of therapy. And it's just like, I'm, I'm, I'm just like, what, it, like, what is this? And in my head, I'm like, dude, am I losing my faith or am I losing, like, it just feels so stereotypical and so kind of you like sure I can I it makes me feel a little better oh and this was the other thought I had the moment I got into church and then I swear I'll shut up again good grief the moment I sat down in church I was like oh this is why people don't want to go to church (laughs) because immediately all I was thinking about was everything bad I had done in the weeks that I hadn't gone to church and I just felt shame and guilt and feeling like I had to answer to the people there and I you know none of this was necessarily implicitly said to me but these were all the feelings I had and I was like man I am sure the guy that just went out drinking last night is having an awful time in here because it's like, this is some set apart place where everyone has their shit together and you're, or I am just feeling bad about what I have done and that I don't fit in here because I'm not doing well. And it was like all these thoughts. And I was just like this, I don't think, this is what it's supposed to be, you know? Mm-hmm. So guide me. Yeah. <laughs> What's going on here? Yeah. All right. So I have some thoughts for sure. Uh, but I'll give you a little bit of background on like what has been happening in my life recently. And then also to help for listeners as well, just so they know the place I'm speaking out of. Uh, I was a pastor for six years back in March of this year. Um, I resigned my position uh, as a pastor at a church um, here in Maryland where I live and I gave up my salary, my benefits, all the great stuff to become a bartender <laughs> at a local brewery. And it was, it was because of a whole bunch of things that you were just saying, but I had, you were know, you lead pastor? I was not. So okay. yeah. So the church that I left, I was a high school and young adult pastor and also like a teaching pastor, like I would preach and stuff, um, lead small groups for adults, whatever. Um, yeah. And it was like a great church. I actually, so I've worked in three churches. Two of them were total shit shows. And the last one I worked in was actually finally good. You know what I mean? Um, but part of my, each part of the reason I left was because I was like, okay, even now that I'm in a good church, there's still all this shit. And so, um, like church, for example, is where I started to develop, uh, depression, I've always had anxiety working in the church, spiked it and like sent me into depression. And so much of it uh, was because of some of the things that you were saying, but then also the most succinct way that I can put it for you. um, And forgive me for this reference, but have you seen Make Happy, one of Bo Burnham's specials? I have. He has a line at the end of Make Happy uh, that like every time I watch that, I lose it. But it's because he nails exactly how I was feeling for so much time. And he says basically something along the lines of like, 
I'm trying to give you people something that I'm not able to give myself. And that's a huge reason I, I left. Um, Is that where he ends with, I hope you're happy or I hope exactly. you Yeah. Yes. I hope you're happy. Mic drop leaves. Yeah. Um, and that like, pff, man, that really fucked me up. But I, so the answer, that's all a long way of saying, I don't think you're wrong. Like you're, I think your experience is just, I mean, it's my experience and it's the experience of so many other people. And honestly, since I left in March, I haven't attended church. Not once. Um, my wife so or myself. So that's like four months. Yeah. And the, I don't know. <laughs> my instincts want me to say that it, the sad thing is that I don't miss it, but I don't know if that's a sad thing. Um, I still like all the things that I was told that the church was offering me. I have found outside of the walls of the church, uh, community, acceptance, grace, you know, people doing life together, all of like the really good things that churches offer. Um, I've with, found outside of it <laughs> with other Christians or with uh, the heathens, yeah, both, the both. And yeah, the, the pagans, the heathens, the Christians, the, you know, the Jews, the Muslims, whoever mm -hmm. um, it's there. And so then I'm asking a question like, okay, what is the thing that the church offers that, um, I can't get anywhere else. And I don't have a good answer for that. And um, that's difficult for me because then you have like Dan Koch putting out his episode that's called Church is Good for You. And according to science and research and psychology and all that kind of stuff, being a part of a religious community is a net positive from yeah. the average person. Um, and so I, I don't know how to reconcile that. Um, because may, I mean, I don't think I'm an average person. I'm kind of weird, but <laughs> yeah, I, I, yes, I agree with that too, because I, I, it's, oh, I hate that I am viewing it more as a cult. Yes. Yeah. And I, sure. I hate that. And it's like, I, it's like, dude, it's like, am I being demonically afflicted with these with these is it a spirit of conflict or is this from god and it's yeah. like saying i don't know it's because what i want what i want is th this is the struggle i'm finding myself in right now is that i have a lot of friends in recovery um mm -hmm. AA has its own brand of spirituality, which I don't really, I mean, I get down with to a degree, but I believe in Jesus. Um, so there it, it's only going to go so far. And I'm also sure. constantly getting non-Christian spiritual advice, which really muddies the water because sometimes it's really helpful. Um, and then on the flip side, I am an ex heroin addict that doesn't always fit in with the goody church crowd. Yeah. And I find myself constantly being the voice of why are we doing this in my church? Like, and with, mm. you know, like we, we, with our, um, with our worship team, we started having like a little small group meeting before rehearsal and it would just be the standard. Hey, tell me about your week. And I, you know, a few times I would be like, uh, you know, I had to counsel a pedophile today and he told me about 
molesting his daughter from age two to 11. And I'm really fucked up over it. Um, that wasn't what they wanted because it's like, they're not okay. And then it, literally it was like, Oh, wow. Okay. So how was your week? You know that? Cause it's like, what, you know what I'm saying? It's like, you don't really yeah. want everyone. You just want me to. So next time I was just like, yeah, it's going good. Things are great. You know? Cause it's, it's like, right. why do you even ask? Why do you even ask? Yeah. Yeah. There's like this weird facade and that, I think that part of that comes from the commodification of church. Like, that I mean, that's one of my biggest issues is that the church is, has become this thing that is to be consumed, um, you know, when I don't think that was ever the intent originally. Um, I'm not so like I want to make a distinction, too, because I talk a lot of crap about the church. And what I'm speaking about is the institution called the church, like these buildings that we go to specifically American. Yeah, specifically American like churches. And because that's different from what I would want to point out is the body of Christ. If, you know, to use that language, um, I don't want to hate on the body of Christ. I mean, that the body of Christ has its faults as well, because it's made up of people. Um, but like the church specifically is where I take most issue with. And then I've just found comfort in having relationship with people outside of the organization. Um that are still within that body, you know, proper, so to speak. Um, now I don't just limit myself there and I don't make distinctions. I know there's people who make distinctions like, Oh, well, I have fellowship with fellow Christians, but those heathens I'm friends with them, but also it's only to a certain extent because, you know, can't have fellowship with them. Um, so I don't want to do any of that, but I think, I don't know. I think that's that's one of the major things itself is like the institution that we call church in America is fundamentally broken. Like the system that emerged, uh, that is this, you know, massive entity that it is now. That's the thing that I think people take issue with. And that's what hurts people. And that's what's turning out all of these issues like systems create exactly what they're designed to create. And so when we have all these pastors getting you know, caught up in all these scandals, whether it's like stealing money from the church or, affairs. you know, being involved in yeah sex scandals, affairs, um, whatever it is, the system is producing exactly what it's designed to produce. And so for me, it's like something is wrong with the institution. I tried to, you know, me, little Josh Patterson with my Messiah complex, try to fix that shit from the inside. Yeah. Still, I couldn't anymore. And then I was like, putting out a fire from the inside is very difficult um yeah so it's I'm, it's very difficult to do without burning alive yeah straight up and so it's like now i'm trying to i took myself out of that space because it was not healthy mentally that was like the main concern was mental health that's why i stopped working at a church um and well since then, things have been good well but, and i wanted to i wanted to so when you said the first two churches were shit shows what does that yeah. mean Oh, I, so the first church I ever worked in, um, I experienced like all sorts of abuse. Um, so the founding pastor and the lead pastor, the campus that I worked at were both extreme narcissists. Um, so I experienced emotional abuse, verbal abuse, spiritual abuse up the wazoo, um, borderline physical abuse. And I don't throw that allegation around, you know, lightly explain that. 
I was backed into corners, finger in my face. They'd come what? into my office and throw shit off my desk, slam doors. Um, what, yeah. dude? Insane. Insane. I left there after being there for eight months, and it was eight months too long. <laughs> and my wife the whole time was like, this is not good. Like, this is not what it means to work in a church. And I was like, no, it's the first church I ever worked in. This is probably just how they all are. Like, this is normal. Yeah. I'm the problem. Yeah. I'm the one that doesn't understand. I just have to get with it. Yes. Um, and so then from a really unhealthy place, well, so I, I left that church, which I think was good, but I took a position at a second church that I wouldn't have taken if my mind was right. You know? Sure. If I wasn't so desperate. So it was a desperation move and it had its own problems, not quite the same, but what was happening there was more um, internal conflict amongst staff it was almost like living in a soap opera yeah like it was very unhealthy staff culture there was a lot of like triangulation a lot of backstabbing a lot like really crazy really weird messed up shit going on yeah and i was there for a year and a half uh almost two years and then i bailed on them so that's that one wasn't as bad in its effects on me most of the troubles that i gleaned gleaned from there came from trying to help like one of my best friends who I met working at that church still one of my best friends trying to help them because they were kind of the center of attack from this like thing that was going on I know I'm being very vague but it was yeah I, I know crazy. I know you can't yeah so I was like I kind of was by his side through the whole thing and that took an emotional toll on me um so that that was just Jeez. insane yeah and then my problem was though that I looked at that church to fix myself from all mm -hmm. the abuse and trauma that I had in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then just added to it. And then I went to another church, uh, the church that I worked at um, and loved, you know, it was fantastic where I resigned from in March. Uh, but I had this unhealthy again, assumption that by now going to this church, they were going to fix me. They were going to heal me. They were going to solve all my problems. Um, and that's just an unfair assumption. It's an unfair weight to put on them. That's not their job. Um, and so that unhealthiness just kind of uh, would come through. And um, yeah, it, yeah, it just, it wasn't good. And so I, the best I can put it was I was given a metaphor um, by a spiritual director. And he said that, um, Josh, have you ever changed the oil of a car before? And I was like, yeah, like all the time. And say, okay. What sounds like you're trying to change the oil of a car while it's still moving. And Dude. it was like, you and I both know that that doesn't work. <laughs> Dude, I, you, well, I, I told you about, I, I had a, um, a, a it's, 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 there are similar parallels. So, I mean, I'm a, a rehab counselor. So it's a similar position of uh, helping people in need, being in authority of sorts. Um, constantly being on call constantly being assaulted you're you're living in other people's crises 24 7 you're never really off it's always and if you're if you're good at it you have a lot of empathy so mm -hmm. it, so it's a double-edged sword right and that i use that exact metaphor i told everyone it's like i've been trying to fix the engine of my car when it's been speeding down the interstate 
And like, literally that's, I've texted that so many times because it's the oh, perfect yeah. metaphor. Cause it's just it like, works well. I'm going to crash. <laughs> like, and I did, and I had to go, I had to go away and I had to go heal myself because I just couldn't take it anymore because it was just, my problems were just mounting and mounting and mounting. And when you talk for a living, the last thing I want to do at the end of the day is talk about, I don't want to talk about anything anymore. And I don't want to go to recovery meetings because I do that for a living. So it's like when I'm off, I want to be off. And it's, it was just a, you know, and it's kind of, they say it's not just like pastors, you know, like if you're having problems, talk to people about it, but you very well could be threatening your job if so I can't I can't go to recovery meetings in town where I have former clients going there now and speak honestly about what's going on with me because my livelihood is at stake. And yeah. that that is a bad place to be. Dude, for sure. And that's like it was exactly my experience too. Like I so luckily the church that I was at they knew about the podcast that I host and they allowed me to do it, um, which was awesome because, you know, I mean, my podcast isn't overly extreme, but it definitely, it definitely is not within the confines of evangelical Christianity and, you know, America. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. like they allowed me to do it, which was nice. Um, but I still could never be my most true and authentic self. Um, I could like hint at things but I couldn't actually fully express um, my actual like faith journey or like where I felt I was that day with God or whatever, uh, because my paycheck depended on it. Yeah. <laughs> my, my house, you know, my, my car feeding my family, like all that kind of stuff insurance. depended on me. Yeah. Insurance, literally everything depended on me believing X, Y, and Z are fitting into this specific system. And then if you don't, all of that is just out the window. Yeah, there's very few, I guess it's kind of changing now. I was about to say there's very few careers that you can say the same about, but honestly, now it's like you can say the wrong thing on Facebook and you're fired for, for different reasons. But oh, sure. um, yeah, that's a broken system. That, that idea in general, it, I guess we, I mean, I, I do too. You know, it's the classic never meet your heroes thing. It's like, I guess we, we want, we want to be led and we want the people leading us to feel um, infallible. And once we see, you know, it's like when, when your parents, when you see them as human for the first time, it's, it's pretty shattering um, mm -hmm. because it's, it's, it can call into question basically everything you know about your entire life. And it's like, this is uncomfortable feeling. Yeah. I'm, I'm guilty of it too. It's like, you know, I want, I have specific criteria in my, whether I am conscious of it or not, I have spe specific criteria for people that I'm going to listen to. Oh yeah. Um, and if they, it's like, what it's like I, my, um, um, I had a friend that was, uh, that did, um, 
movie extra work and she would tell me all the time which celebrities are pieces of shit in real life and I, I had to tell her to stop because it would literally poison the water for me and I'd watch a movie with them in it and I was like oh but they suck in real life and it really you know it changed uh how I viewed them so it's like the, there there are real consequences to knowledge Oh, for sure. Definitely. And I mean, I think that we can map that directly onto church then too. Like that was another one of my biggest issues was once you're on staff at a church and you have a position of leadership, you have a seat at that table, then you quote unquote, see how the sausage is made. And you're like, whoa, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> like, fuck that. That's insane. Really? This is, this is how this goes down. Um, and that, I mean, especially at the first church I worked at, that place was awful. Like, lie to people straight up lie about money. They're like, they were sketchy and like talk shit about congregants behind their back, like insane stuff. Oh, geez. And like, once, once you see that, like you said, it kind of poisons it. Um, it kind of, it just kind of ruins it. And I was never able to like, maybe it's a maturity thing on my part, but I was never able to like reconcile that or like push that aside enough. Um, I tried, I really did. Yeah. But it still would manifest itself. That's what, that's what I like found out Sunday was, was like, dude, I can't, I can't separate the two. I know, you know, I, I could predict, uh, okay. As soon as you say these words, the key, the keyboard is, is going to hit a few minor chords and you're going to do the altar call and, you know, and then there we go. Yeah. It's just like, you're going to, you're going to ask a few congregants to raise their hands if they relate to a few certain things and that's that and there's the sunday and it's like i at the and i have been like my i, I speak a lot about my parents church in uh lexington uh or columbia south carolina um they do it very well of uh it's teaching it's a lot of scriptural teaching it's things that i don't know um it's straight it's straight Bible study. Essentially there's, there's okay. very, there's very little, um, emotional appeal. Uh, it's going to be a lot of education, theology, that sort of thing that, and maybe it is because what I also had to realize, maybe it is a maturity thing, like you said, because I also had to realize that the model is in place for a reason. And that reason is it, seems to work for a population but does it really or are they just comfortable <laughs> because nobody's challenged it's like you know i remember when um the black lives matter thing first started and or the police brutality thing and i straight up went to my pastor and i was like hey are you gonna um are you gonna address any of this at all uh and he basically was like no <laughs> and I was like, I feel like we should, you know, I feel yeah. like we should talk about this. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, I think this is, uh, I think this is what we need to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. The it's that kind of stuff is so frustrating because it's, again, it's like, once you start introducing real life, you break the illusion, you break the facade that's like being put forth. And it's again, like, oh no, we like, we, we don't talk about that here. Like, yeah. that's not what we do because again, that will like kill the whole, 
yeah. uh, production value of what's trying to be produced for people to consume. It'll be like, we don't want those kind of vibes. That's not what we're doing. Like, um, I remember specifically being told like in the first church I worked at, like, you know, sermons have to be like happy and upbeat and we don't sing any sad music here. And we like, we always end with a happy song. We never do anything slow, like blah, blah, blah. So they had like, it was all just a fucking program designed for consumption and it just misses the whole point. So when people walk away from that, I'm like, good. I don't blame you. That's not what it should be anyway. Um, which is why I think to go back to something you said earlier, when you're like, is this like, am I deceived? Is this like demonic or is this the leading of, you know, God or the Holy spirit, whatever language you like. Um, I'm more inclined to believe it's the leading of the Holy spirit because the things that are being pushed aside are things that are, that bear bad fruit, you know, to use Jesus's yeah. language. So yeah. it's like, maybe, maybe. And I mean, as Christians, we believe like it's crazy, but the whole like death resurrection thing. Right. So part of my theory is like, I wonder for the version of church that we have currently, at least again in America, that's our context. What if it has to die? But then as Christians, we believe in resurrection. What's going to be rebirthed out of the death of this thing? Maybe that, and that could be a very good thing. That's what I'm more interested in asking is like, are we brave enough to say, okay, what if this thing dies? What's going to be birthed out of the ashes? And I'm interested in that. I would like to be a part of whatever that thing is, you know, because yeah. Jesus, dude, if he, if, if, if at least if this Jesus guy has something to do with it, I'm on board. What's um, funny is, uh, I don't know if you happen to catch my episodes with um, Chris uh, from the band Luxury. And um, I, I, it was weird. I had this three piece where I talked to Josh from The Beautiful Mistake, who led me to Chris from the band Luxury, who led me to his friend. So all the, um, uh, or like two, two or three of the members of luxury became Orthodox priests. <laughs> and yeah. I had never, I, it, in my ignorance, I, I didn't even know Orthodoxy was a thing. I thought it was like Greek Orthodox or something. I didn't realize that this was like a, its own thing. Um, and it like, I had so many emails back of like, I think I want to be an Orthodox. So many people were like, that sounds... <laughs> way it's you know it's just kind of retaking um the reverence and the ritual um back into it and it's like Mm -hmm. i think that's what i'm feeling more drawn towards lately because i need a rebirth like i'm not one of those people that has deconstructed and like now i'm free from the it's like no i'm fucked up because it's like you have removed (laughs) this thing for me i need something else and i'm not i do i i don't like from what i've been through i don't think there is anything that could ever change my mind on jesus at this point it's just there's sure. just not like it's it's what i believe um yeah. so i need like what i want is fellowship that's what i was trying to uh, talk about earlier was that i, I don't it's I, I don't really have the people i have are like you and people i've met through the podcast um people in like I started a small group with members of my Patreon and that's gone really well because it's like we and but we all live in different states it's like those Mm -hmm. are the people Mm -hmm. I I now most closely align to theologically and we're all kind of in the same place spiritually and it's like I, I need that 
locally and I just haven't found it. And it's, I, I'm, I guess maybe I need to go church shopping, but do <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Yeah, dude, it's, that's so interesting because, so we just did an episode recently uh, with Father Nuboja, who's an Orthodox priest. He's connected to my buddy, Marty, uh, who co-hosts the show that I do. And like, I don't know how much history or whatever they, they did when you were talking about Orthodox, like the Orthodox church, but historically the Horth, the Orthodox church is also can be referred to as the um, apostolic church. It's the one most closely related to like the original, like apostles of Jesus. That's what they say. And no, so, I didn't know that. Or, yeah. And so yeah. basically the Orthodox church was the church of the East. And then you had the church of the West. And then there was this great schism that happened where the church of the West was like, fuck you. You're not really Christians. <laughs> you get excommunicated. And then the Eastern church returned the favor. And they're like, no, fuck you. You're excommunicated. So they split. And then, and the Eastern church continued to do its thing. Like from the apostolic period on to today, kept doing their thing. And then you have the Western church. Um, and then we, you know, get to the Protestant reformation and then it's split. But the problem is they only reformed one half of the church because it was the Western part that split away from the Eastern bit, which is where all the Orthodox people come from. And so like that tradition is still alive and well, and it is beautiful. And like, I'm finding to your point, like things like liturgy, and things like that that I used to shit on because I was like, oh, this is so fake and this doesn't count because like someone else wrote this prayer. But what I'm finding is there's so much um, beauty and strength in things like liturgy and um, different like practices within the church because on days when I can't believe, when I don't, I can at least step into a liturgy of people who have gone before me and people who are there currently and they can believe for me. You see what I'm saying? Like, I can step yes. into this long, ancient wisdom tradition and say, you know what? Like today, I don't really know what the hell's going on, but these people, you know, I'm with them. And so they're going to be yeah. for me. And I think that's a, a beautiful thing. And I think that's why so many people who go through like the whole deconstruction thing and then they want something else, they're all hopping over to like, mainline denominations like they're becoming methodist or episcopalians because they're getting that tradition and they're starting to see the value in it um and i think that's a really beautiful a beautiful thing yeah um, i'm not opposed to that <laughs> no no not at all um well so i guess have you noticed any negatives from not going to church since March? Um, I mean, I definitely miss people. I'm not going to lie. Like I'm, I'm an insanely relational person. Um, I love making relation. I want everybody to, you know, be my friend. <laughs> I'm yeah. one of those kind of people. So it's difficult to leaving and invest, you know, a community that I was emotionally invested in. Um, that's been the hardest thing for me. Uh, but as far as my faith goes, like, this will sound cliche and like, Oh, everybody says this and it's just stupid. But like, I think my faith is at a deeper and more real place than it has ever been. Uh, because it, I kind of quote unquote gave myself permission to steal Dan's language. Um, can you kind of explain what that looks like? Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think um, I'm glad you asked because I, mean, <laughs> I wrote down a little note earlier when we were talking 
I mean, for me, one of the biggest things that I think has to happen first is there has to be a distinction made between faith and belief. Okay. I'll explain what I mean by that. Belief for me, how I'm using these words, belief is pure intellectual assent. Here's some doctrines. Here's different, you know, you know, maybe you think this way about God. Maybe you're a Calvinist or maybe you're an open theist, or maybe you believe in eternal conscious torment, or maybe you're a universalist. All of these things are like intellectual assent. These are my beliefs. I believe Jesus rose from the dead, or I believe that women should be pastors or whatever. Excuse me. They're all intellectual. And so that's very heady. I think faith comes from a deeper place. I think faith, I would want to connect more with the heart, which I know in Christian circles can be naughty language for whatever reason, because they like to say the heart is deceitful above all else. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's, you know, whatever. Um, (laughs) You can't, you can't not like everything you do is experiential and through a lens. Like, so you can't not have heart included. It just yeah. it doesn't work that way. The great um, theologian Selena Gomez would say the heart wants what it wants. Hell yeah. Thanks, Selena. <laughs> but um, so for me, faith comes from a deeper sense of knowing. And I'm not talking about an intellectual knowing, but an experiential knowing. And so for me, the thing that has dramatically shifted my faith, the reason one, I'm still a Jesus follower um, or a Christ follower, a Christian, is because of uh, essentially mystical Christianity, experiential knowledge of God, contemplative prayer, centering prayer, and like straight up experiential knowledge of God. That's why I still have faith. That is something that can't be taken away because it's not an intellectual belief. It's an experiential reality that I experience every day. It's and Is, and can you yeah. possibly put that into words? I know that's kind of an ineffable <laughs> thing, but <Yeah. laughs> that I mean that's what all the mystics have tried to do for so long. I know. Um, but so it's basically I so my biggest issue in Christianity that my spiritual director helped me get over was I was basically I was afraid of God. And I assumed all these negative things about God and how God looked at me and viewed me, um, even if it was implicitly taught and not explicit. And I could teach love and grace and forgiveness and all that kind of stuff, but I never actually believed it for myself, at least not in a deep way. And so I agree. And so what that took was me to experience, to actually experience God, to have an encounter with the divine and see the truth for what it is that God is a God of love. Like I'm, man, this is, it gets so convoluted and you're asking for words, but like, so I'm like super into open and relational theology process thought, but it's because those things that the center of those things is love. um, They make the most sense of my experience. Okay. So the God that I experience in my everyday life, looks like the God of open and relational theology and other people have written about this since forever, since the beginning of the church, this experiential knowledge of God that comes through. um, What, what is open and relational theology? If it won't derail you too much. Yeah. So open and relational theology. um, Basically when I say open, I mean 
that's making a claim about uh, time and how time works. Okay. Uh, open means that the future does not exist, uh, that the future is genuinely open. There is no such thing called the future. It does not exist yet. Um, so there is no future for God to know. So when we talk about God's foreknowledge, God doesn't foreknow the future because it hasn't happened yet. God experiences everything fully in that moment, but doesn't know what's going to happen next. He knows, or she, whatever language, God knows the future only as a realm of possibilities. Um, now, God is still the, the, the smartest being. God is still um, all like God is all knowing because God knows everything that there is to know. You can't outsmart God. But the future just doesn't exist yet. So this is that like allows... a self-limiting. So that's a really important distinction because um, I would answer no. Some open theists would say yes. They would say God chooses to self-limit so that humans can have freedom. I take a perspective called essential kenosis, um, which means God is. Uh, so kenosis is a Greek word that Paul uses a bunch in the New Testament most famously in his uh, little hymn he writes in Corinthians where it talks about Jesus. And he was like, Jesus, although in the form of God, didn't take, you know, being God, something to be taken advantage of, but rather humbled himself, you know, even to death on a cross, th that whole bit. The word that he uses there when he says Jesus humbled himself or whatever is kenosis. And it means uh, pour, to pour oneself out, to fully give of oneself. And so to say God is essentially canonic means God is essentially self-giving other empowering love. So for me, I believe Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. What does Jesus look like? Jesus looks like other empowering, self-emptying, self-giving love. So God is essentially canonic or necessarily loving, which means if God is necessarily loving, love isn't a characteristic of God, but it is the first and foremost essence of who God is. And if God is necessarily loving, then God doesn't limit God's self in not being able to do things. Um, there are simply things God can't do because it's outside of God's nature. Um, so being coercive or being controlling is not a loving thing. And so I want to say that God is neither coercive or controlling. Um, so God's love is always active. God's present in every single moment always working to bring about the most good and love out of every situation, but God is inviting rather than coercing people to either partner with God or not. Um, and so God isn't self-limiting. It's in God's very essence um, because God is essentially love loving. There are just things that God can't do. So that's open. What? And yeah, go ahead. So no. <laughs> so what does that do that? that gave me a momentary stomach drop of the okay. idea. It throws a wrench in the favorite church system idea of for God has a plan for you, for you to prosper and not. So the idea that God has this, um, uh, the determinism or predestination or mm -hmm. um, that, we needn't be afraid um, because everything that happens is within God's control. And I guess I really have always thought that um, 
my future is predetermined and man, I wonder. Yeah. So I guess that's, that's enough for you to extract out of. No, this is perfect. Yeah. And it's so funny. Cause I'm actually, I'm doing an interview later tonight um, with Thomas J. Ord for my podcast, who's an open relational theologian. And we're talking about this. This is good practice for myself. <laughs> um, but yes. Yeah, so an open theologian an open theist would not say that God doesn't have a plan or that God doesn't have desires. Um, but what they would say is that God, um, in order for God's plans and desires to be carried out, um, it involves cooperation from other creatures from creation. And so that would say that God's plans can get thwarted. Like God's plans can like, God doesn't always win necessarily. Um, like people can genuinely screw up God's will, which I think people believe experience, like just naturally, like, so I'll give a really extreme example. I'm not comfortable saying that God preordained or caused the Holocaust. I don't want to say that. And so if I can say that God is non-coercive and can't single-handedly prevent evil, God doesn't want those things to happen. God is constantly influencing others to not participate in such things. But when people choose not to participate with God, there's consequences um, that are natural. I think that's what evil is. Um, God's not on the hook for that because, and say you take away determinism. Oh man. Okay. So God didn't preordain the Holocaust. People genuinely have free will, but God still knows the future and God allows people to do bad things. We could say that, and that's a that's classic Armenian theology. That's what a lot of Christians believe. But the problem with that arises when you ask a question like, okay, say you and I were at a swimming pool and there was a little girl and we saw a gentleman go up to the little girl and hold her underwater. And you and I could genuinely stop that from happening. If we didn't, people would say that we are morally fucked up right <laughs> if we didn't prevent that genuine evil from happening even though it was fully in our power to do so that people would not say wow jed and josh they're really great guys they'd be like no fuck them they stood by watched this little girl get drowned when they specifically could have done something and so then when we turn around and say okay well if god could genuinely stop evil and doesn't but don't worry god's not culpable god is still good god is still loving that doesn't make sense to me yeah. Um, well, and that's I'm, I'm rehashing the problem of evil. That's all it is. Yes. Well, and that's so what I deal with in my line of work, and it's one of my it's become one of my favorite things is helping to people, helping people to understand what they believe and why they believe it, whether they know it or not. Um sure. my if I had to take a survey, the biggest number one problem people have with the idea of god or higher power is why did he x why did he mm -hmm. y why did he take my wife from me why you know and i i deal with uh veterans so most of them are uh iraq afghanistan veterans um and a bunch of them I do a group where I say, uh, what did I believe about God as a child? And then did something happen that changed that belief? And nine times out of 10, what changed their belief was seeing um, 
the Iraq war or the Afghanistan war and what, how, like what kind of God is this? And um, there's something called moral injury, which is kind of a, a new uh, it's the hot therapy thing for the VA right now, which is, um, and actually it's very interesting to, to do true moral injury treatment. You're supposed to have a clergy present. So you have a clergy and a therapist. And the idea is that when we either commit an act that is against our moral or fail to prevent an act that is against our morals, we have then suffered a moral injury. So if you stand by and watch a woman get beat, um, you've just suffered a moral injury if that goes against your morals, right? And it's kind of how do you, especially with a lot of these soldiers, it's I killed someone. Um, and how do I, how can a God forgive me? Um, they can say it with their lips, but I, you know, if you dig deeper, they do not believe that they will be forgiven for what they've done. And the biggest thing I try to challenge, and then the other big population I deal with is older, like 60s age African-Americans that are terrified they won't say they're terrified and it comes across as anger they do not like their beliefs being called into question because the question i end that group with is what are my negative beliefs about god and i can look at a room and tell you which people are going to say nothing because they're afraid to say anything there's oh it's it's all me there's nothing negative about god it's all me and it's like no you, you have, and I challenge them every time, like, no, there are, you have negative beliefs about God because you wouldn't be here if, if that wasn't the case. Like, you just mm -hmm. don't want to admit it. And they have their, you know, it's people that have been, you know, smoking crack or doing whatever for years, but they know scripture back and forwards and they go to church and this is what I believe. It's unshakable. But it's like, no, there's a disconnect there. If you truly believed this, then you wouldn't do these things. You, you, you just really wouldn't. Like, obviously, but at, at that age, it's so, it is, I don't believe it's even possible without spirit nudging for them to change that belief because it is so ingrained in who they are that to lose that, the other thing I've noticed, which is interesting, is the amount of closeted homosexuals <laughs> that can't, they can't reconcile that. And so they keep using drugs. Like when I've, when I, when you dig deep, you find out that they use drugs to engage in homosexual acts um, and keeping that secret keeps them sick and keeps them out there and they can't usually because of religious beliefs that, you know, gay people go to hell that they will never, they probably, most of them will probably never um, be able to be open about like probably who they really are. Right. And that's, that's also how I've, you know, it, it's not, it's, it's obviously not a choice for these people. You know what I'm saying? And that's what they struggle the most with is, is thinking it is and that they are just sinful, like in their own language, and they're just committing the sin 
And as long as they had that belief. So it's like, if I could, I'm just thinking like how much, but that is like an, it's hard enough for me. So I can't imagine trying to explain open theism to these people, (laughs) you know, it's, that's so far. Oh man. And it's like, I have to try to explain because a lot of the other questions I get are like, you know, how do you get a relationship with God and trying to explain like, look, man, like I had to like read books, listen to podcasts, talk to people. Like you really got to go looking like it's not, I don't, obviously the spoon fed answers aren't enough for you. So you, but it's, yeah, it's freaking tough, man. Yeah, dude, a hundred percent. And I empathize with literally everything that you're saying. Um, And for me, again, when it comes back to, and again, it's not helpful to say because I I don't have good words to explain it, but it comes down to an experiential knowledge of God because um, a lot of what the, a lot of the reason people cling to intellectual belief is out of fear um, because they're operating out of the assumption, like various assumptions about God, about hell, about, you know, whatever, about what it means to be a human. Um, that are, again, they're just beliefs, they're intellectual beliefs. But then for me, I had to, like, and it took the guidance of a spiritual director. Like I went to a spiritual director, I still do. And that was the best thing I've ever done in my life. Um, but to ex- actually physically experience a God who is loving and accepting. And like, I can tell you, there's nothing to prove. There's nothing that you have to do. Like you already belong. It's already there. And like the pro one of the big problems is when we tell people that the opposite is true, that they're pieces of shit and that everything sucks and like whatever you're starting with a problem. And when you start with a problem and then build up, you're only going to get more problems. People don't change because you tell them they're pieces of shit. Like, I mean, psychology tells us this people change when they're accepted Mm. and when they belong and when they're loved and then true transformation can happen. Um, but my issue that I take up with the whole belief thing, like is correct belief is the real thing. And like people say salvation by grace alone, but really what they mean, they're saying is salvation by correct belief because with like what they really mm-hmm. get down to, if you press oh, them, gosh. you have to believe like me and then you're saved. Um, and so, Oh shit. Train of thought, ADHD brain. Ugh. I know that's demons. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but that, that, is shit that's not helpful is basically the gist of it and um once we make everything intellectualized like that it turns faith into a transaction check these boxes and i will do this thing for you when the whole purpose is transformation um christianity is a wisdom tradition uh jesus amongst other things was a great wisdom teacher uh, whose wisdom teachings still transcend like society and our culture today. It's insane. Um, and so like tapping into those things and again, like the contemplative aspects of faith, reading people, reading like St. Teresa of Avila and like St. John of the cross, all these people, all these Christian quote unquote mystics who have gone before And they've been writing about like deconstruction and all this kind of stuff since the very beginning of the Christian faith. It's not new. Like people 
are trying to say like, oh, deconstruction is this new fad that's 10 years old, whatever, 15 years old. It's not like it's been, it's a part of what it, it's a part of the journey. Uh, like the language that I'm finding helpful that I've been toying with is we're all on this journey of becoming um, and we never quite arrive, but like the deconstruction, the questioning of belief and all that kind of stuff is just a part of what it means to be a Christian, like to follow Jesus. Cause it's never about correct belief necessarily. It's more so about transformation. Like if you, you could have correct theology and be an asshole and not be transformed and not love other people and not follow the two most basic commands, love God, love neighbor. Um, even if you have all the correct beliefs, if you don't do those things, it doesn't matter. Paul says it's, you're a noisy gong. It's bullshit. Yeah. 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 Um, so that's where the experiential knowledge that God is a, a God of love. Like, dude, I can't explain it, but I'll, I'll tell you a story and maybe this will help. I was in spiritual direction the other day. And one of the biggest struggles that I had leaving the church was I genuinely believed if I stopped being a pastor, God would not love me. Mm. And I believed that other people would no longer love me. I yes. tied my identity and my self-worth to the title that I had called pastor. And that was the biggest thing I had to work on was differentiating those things. I had to unhinge my identity and my worth from the title I had pastor and it took me eight months in spiritual direction to do that but it still rears its ugly head because the other day I was there and um, I was telling my spiritual director about a recent spiritual experience that I had um, where I was in a small group and this guy led us in a, in a prayer time and he asked some specific questions. I know that I have the sheet here somewhere. If I could find it, here it is. So he asked these three questions. How am I seeing Jesus these days? What am I noticing about Jesus? How is Jesus seeing me and what emerges as I sit with this question? And what's my invitation in this? How might I respond? And so here I am working in a brewery. Um, I'm now the GM of 1623 Brewing Company. Uh, that's what I do. And he's asking these questions. And he says, how, how am I seeing Jesus these days? What am I noticing about Jesus? And this is what I wrote. I wrote liberation and salvation. I feel free to just be. Jesus has remained faithful and loved me even after I left vocational church ministry. I found Jesus amongst the faces of those at the bar, and I found Jesus in the relationships with my coworkers. Jesus has challenged me to reach for life and to reach for resurrection and to just live. And then he says, how is Jesus seeing me? What emerges as I sit with this question? And I wrote, I'm drawn to Jesus at the Last Supper, lounging with his disciples as I stand behind a bar, lounging with those who join me, I can't help but to think of Jesus lounging with the disciples. Jesus is present with me, lounging at the end of the bar, smiling, laughing, and ordering another round. And then what's my invitation in this? How might I respond? And I said, embrace life and live. Be the best bartender that I can be and lounge with those who gather. Smile, laugh, enjoy life, and have just one more round. So I shared this experience with my spiritual director and she asked me if I would um, bring myself back into that space. And so I did. And she asked me, okay, and now bear with me because it's going to sound weird. Yeah. Because yeah. um, she said, now that you're in that space, you're, you're at the bar, 
where where are you relationally like spatially to jesus where are you I said well i'm over at the taps pouring and jesus is kind of at the very corner of the bar so a little bit distance she's like what does it look like for you to move towards jesus it's like okay so then again this is uh people call it a shit um a vision um but i'm like actively awake prayer state somebody guiding me through prayer um and so i move myself towards jesus and as i do dude literally my entire body started tingling like the whole thing tingling sensation like wow. a rush and embrace and the closer i got to jesus the more this intensified and then like i just lost it and started bawling and she was like oh, why man. are you crying what what's the emotion and i was like like I am accepted just as who I am. And so, and that's, that's the experiential knowledge I'm talking about that I want for everybody. I'm not a Christian because of intellectual belief, but because of direct experience with the divine. And now um, I, I, to use Paul language, like quote unquote, have eyes to see, I, I'm not perfect at it, but salvation is less about going to heaven when you die. And it's more about an awakening to an awakening to reality as it really is. And the, that awakening is being able to see Christ in and through all things in the faces of every person you ever meet in the face of your ferrets in your dog and whoever. And then recognizing that when Moses took off his shoes, because he was like, Oh, the ground is holy. It's not that the ground was not holy and then became holy, but rather Moses awakened to the true reality of how things are. The ground had been holy the entire time. There are burning bushes everywhere, constantly, if you have eyes to see. That's, that is the experiential knowledge of God that I have found. That is why I have faith. I don't know what the fuck I believe, but I have faith through a deep knowing experientially and it looks like the one that Jesus called Abba, a God who is love and inviting and welcoming. And then I just gave you a whole rant, but maybe that does something. Yeah, no, <laughs> that totally does something, man. That's uh, that'll actually probably be a good um, that'll be a good kind of uh, wrapping on the whole thing. Oh, I, I, I think what part of what i want to find is a good spiritual director like that i can that... recommend one. Oh, like i can just see her on zoom and stuff uh-huh she's wonderful her name is sid holsclaw does she cost money a little bit not a lot yeah that's fine yeah yeah oh okay so she's not local for you nope all this oh. is all via zoom <laughs> oh dude yes please do months with sid via zoom she is fantastic and she has a book called does god really like me uh, and... <laughs> oh my god this okay dude yes okay that's what i that's yes do that i'm gonna do that um yeah, yeah we gotta do this again man this uh Always. this flew by this was super good um yeah so find uh yeah tell them whether they can find your show oh sure yeah so you can just um search us anywhere podcasts are found just look up rethinking faith uh, for whatever reason with Apple, like they just updated the podcast app. And so it's showing our old theology doesn't suck logo. And I don't know why. Um, but so don't get confused by that. When you search rethinking faith, it might show a logo that says theology doesn't suck. Uh, but then also like the host 
company for our podcast is called Podbean. So you can go to like Rethinking Faith. Like if you Google Rethinking Faith Podbean, it'll come up there as well. But literally anywhere you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Apple Music, whatever, the podcast app from Apple, we're there. Um, and then you can also email me, rethinkingfaithpod at gmail.com. And we're on Instagram. Just look up Rethinking Faith. And um, I do my best to respond to DMs and uh, we're fairly active there. So feel free to hit us up. And then if you want to just hit me up, um, I'm also on Instagram, jpatty94, uh, or just email me, joshuagpatterson at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to talk with you. Awesome. And uh, email me, churchandotherdrugs at gmail.com, patreon.com slash churchandotherdrugs. I do want to say, I know uh, I'm super grateful to all the patrons. It's like you really, um, I I wish I could put into words how much it helps me. Um, So thank you. Thank you for your uh, continued support. Um, Yeah, Josh, man, it's been awesome. Until next it's like I always played a lose you I saw your eyes filling up with tears You pulled the plug and then you disappeared This home has never felt so empty Effortless the way you left me Cut me open with your own two hands Breathing is so difficult Watch me as I come undone